yesterday we came up to the point where we felt that there was a supernatural being in existence and the evidence was pretty strong. We didn't do everything, we didn't look at everything, but from what we did, the evidence was strong. So let's call that supernatural being God. So does this God have one name or does he have many names? That's the next question. If he has only one name, then we call it exclusivism, just one. If he has more than one, it's called pluralism, more than one, plural. And this is what pluralism says. All religions lead to God. They are different paths, but end up at the same destination. This is a statement by W.E. Hawke. God is in the world, but Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad are in their little closets. We should thank them, but never return to them. To understand God is to listen. Listen to Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha, but don't get caught up in the names. Listen beyond them. Listen to God's breath. Very profound as it sounds. I would like you to remember just two phrases on, that's on the screen here. Listen to and listen beyond. We'll come back to it in a little bit. So pluralism recognizes not only the existence of other religions, but their intrinsic equal value. You see, if they didn't say that, then a seeker like me would say, then which is the best? So if you want to say that all of the paths lead finally to the same conclude to the same goal, then you will have to make the okay. Just try then you will have to make the uh, claim that all of them are equal in their value. So they're not only valid and true, but equally so. That's, that's their claim. They have to make that claim. You, you can't get away from that claim. What I did was then ask, where did they get that idea? Where did anyone get the idea that all these different claims are equally true? And that finally they will land up in the same destination, whether it's nirvana or whether it is heaven or whatever you want to call it, paradise. How do you know all of them will go there? So I asked, number one, uh, is that the idea you get from reading their different scriptures? So I went to the different scriptures, and here's what I'd like to show you uh, is what is written in the different scriptures. For instance, Hinduism, Bhagavad Gita, which is the quote here, is inside another book, an epic, a big story called Mahabharata. And Bhagavad Gita is known as the kind of kernel or the core of Hindu thought although it is not the only. Bhagavad is God, Gita is song, song of God is the description, is the talk between God and a human telling him his duties. This is what Bhagavad Gita says about Krishna. Krishna is the seventh incarnate of the God Vishnu, but in some circles Krishna is really lifted up to a, to a top level. This is what Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita. I am the goal, the upholder, the master, the witness, the home, the shelter, and the most dear friend. I am the creation and the annihilation, the basis of everything. Good. So when I just go ahead and read, okay? 
the basis of everything. everything. The resting place in eternal seed. And now from the introduction to the Bhagavad Gita, let there be one scripture for the whole world, Bhagavad Gita. Let there be one God for the whole world, Sri Krishna. One hymn, one mantra, one prayer, the chanting of his name. That's the Hindu claim. Islam, in the Quran, the second chapter in verse 255, it is known as the coronation or regal verse of the Quran. This is what it says. Allah, there is no God but He, the living, the self-subsisting supporter of all. His are how much? All things in the heavens and on earth. His throne does extend over the earth. He is the most high, the supreme. Buddhism, this Lord, Gautama Buddha, is truly the Arhat. Arhat is a person who has reached the highest state of an attainment. He is truly the Arhat, the fully enlightened, perfect in his knowledge and conduct, well gone, world knower. Next word? unsurpassed. Leader of men to be tamed, teacher of gods and men, the Buddha, definitive article, the Lord. Did you see a trend here? They are each saying that they are the only way. Judaism, this is from the Bible, Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. For thus said the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth. I am the Lord and there are about 20 others. No. <laughs> no? I am the Lord and there is? No. no other. Christianity, for there is how many other names? No other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you go to the writings, every single religion claims to be the only way. I have not yet found a single religion which says, I am a path, and of course the other is also an alternate which is equally good. No. They will claim to be the only way. So how did pluralism get around? It was with some people trying to avoid conflict. They were not worried about the truth of the matter. They were only trying to avoid conflict and that's why pluralism came around. But in the scriptures themselves of various uh, religions, you do not find any idea of pluralism. You find only exclusivism. So at the heart of every religion is an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining who God is or is not and accordingly of divining life's purpose. Every religion at its core is exclusive. What is truly arrogant is a postmodernist pluralism which in vain pursuit of a superficial tolerance negotiates away the ultimate commitment by which any religion lives. And the ultimate commitment is to say that you are the only way. Agreement, see this is what they try to do. Let's, let's make a kind of compromise. We'll agree, you agree, and let's all get together. But agreement cannot be made without substantial compromise of core beliefs. I could give you a lot of examples. It's impossible to say that one is equal to the other. And even if there are lots of similarities, even one irreconcilable difference will negate all the similarities. Even one. 
you can find a hundred thousand uh, similarities between two complex organisms. Only one difference. This is called Hitler and this is called Mother Teresa. Are they the same? But you can find a hundred thousand similarities. One head, one head, two eyes, skin. Yeah. Lots of similarities. Just one difference. Hitler, Mother Teresa. No. Even one irreconcilable difference negates all the similarities. So they are definitely different. So every religion claims itself to be the only way. Now what shall we do? We are sure that they are not saying that all of them are equal. So we are going to put that aside. Each one is saying they are the only way. Now what are the options? So what are the options when multiple claims are, be, are made as the champion? I am the champion. No, no, I am. And the third one says, no, I am. Now what shall we do? There are three options. The first is utterly absurd when we say that all are correct. Is that OK? It's quite unreasonable. You can't have two presidents of the United States. There's only one. One gold medalist. Even 1.001 second, and you also ran. This is gold medal. So all, all, to say all correct is not reasonable. All could be wrong. That's not unreasonable. But how do you say anything is wrong without knowing what is right? So here am I searching and looking for, for the truth. I don't have a yardstick. How can I possibly call anything wrong? I can't. I don't have a yardstick. There's no reference point. So I can't call any of them wrong. But I would have to if I want to bring them and, and to say that they're all wrong and bring them into one, one category. I would have to go up to Muhammad and say, sorry, <laughs> I know you, you've made a big claim about going up Mount Hira and meeting Angel Gabriel, but you know, it's all humbug. Or I must turn to Jesus and say, nice sermon on the mount, but rubbish. I can't say that. I have no authority, no knowledge, no position to that. Secondly, if I say that all of them are wrong, there's one thing that all of them are saying, that there is something supernatural. So I'll have to discard that too. But I can't do that because in my previous session, we just established that. There is something supernatural. So I could not say all were wrong. I was left with only one option, and that was there's only one of them that is legitimate and correct when it says and claims that it is the only way. This took me about six months, because I looked at it in every angle I could, and I cannot find it. And I'm going to throw it out, uh, not as a nasty challenge, but as, a, as an intellectual challenge. Can you find any other option? then all are wrong, all are correct, and there's only one. If there are more than one claiming to be the only way, I find there's only one, the last one is correct. So it was, to me, a very amazing, crucial, pivotal conclusion that there's only one religion that can make a legitimate, correct, authentic claim that it is the only way. There's one and only one way. Any questions? Get your wheels turning. Think about it. You put, uh, you put a statement up there from Hinduism about one God. Yes. I don't believe in thousands of gods. 
thousands of manifestations. In fact, it's not thousands. Do you know how many there are? There are people who have guesstimated. Now, I'm from that country, so I'm from the Indian Peninsula. I come from there, so you won't hurt me if you guess. 330 million. <laughs> there are manifestations. There's one ultimate being called Brahma, Brahman. One fourth of himself, with one fourth of himself, he created all that we see. But all the others that they, that they worship or talk about are manifestations of that one. How, oh, the triune god of the Hindus is Brahma, the creator, uh, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the destroyer. Krishna is the eighth incarnate, avatar, incarnate of the god Vishnu. Vishnu came to this earth in different forms, starting with Matsya, the fish. Very interesting story of Manu, the first man. The world was very wicked, and the wickedness grew so much that God had to destroy with a flood. And so when the floods came, Manu had saved his fish from the sea and had grown it in his own, in his own uh, fish tank. It grew so big that he released in the sea. And then when this flood came, Manu got into the ship, but it was being tossed about so wildly and was going to be capsized, and the fish came swinging by and caught a hold of the rope that was tied to the helm of the ship and guided it to safety. That's the first incarnate of the god Vishnu. Krishna is the eighth incarnate, and Rama the seventh. So Rama and Krishna are the most common ones. Let's carry on. If there's only one way, there's a lot of significances. We won't go through that. If there is just one way, then my next question was, which is that possible way? And at that point, let me tell you, if you have been really searching like I was, I was desperately searching, when you come to that realization that there's only one, you get scared. Because the first question you ask yourself, am I in that way or am I somewhere else? Will I be able to recognize it at all? And it's a frightening thing, but it's a real thing, at least in my search, that there had to be just one. So which is that way? You cannot, you cannot compare apples and oranges. That was a tough one. Weeks and months scratching my head. How can I compare one with the other? So, and then I realized that's one thing you cannot compare because you do not have a yardstick. There is no reference point, And that is you cannot compare their doctrines or their beliefs. There's no way you can look at one and say this is better than the other. So I had a shift out from there, and I was looking at these apples and oranges. You put an apple and orange on this table, and this impossible to say which is better. Because I might like an apple, and I'll go for the apple, but you might like an orange. So how do you compare those two? Really, you can't ordinarily. But suppose the apple was nice and shiny and red and fresh and sweet and I like oranges okay the apple is here and I'm hungry 
and the orange which I like was under that tree for two weeks on the ground. And when we picked it up, it already was kind of shriveled a little bit, big black blotches on the skin, holes inside the middle of the blotches, and wiggly little creatures sticking out their heads. Now we're going to choose between an apple and an orange. Which one do you think I'd choose if I was hungry? Easy, right? Extremely easy. But did I choose between the apple and the orange? I like oranges. If you ask me to choose, I would have picked up the orange normally. I did and I did not. It might appear that I picked between an apple and an orange, but actually I picked between freshness and rottenness. So also, when you go to these different religions, you cannot look at their features. You look at what I call para-religious features. That which they claim is the base on which they made their claims of the religion. There are those. And we, I had to shift out to find out if there are other what we would call para-religious or secondary features of the religion and find the credibility of that. That is how I did it. I'm going to demonstrate to you or show you uh, what I did. Number one, I looked at them and said, I'm not, I can't decide which is better than the other. I'm going to call all of them champions. But I'm going to look for the champion of champions. That's what I'm after. Therefore, if they tell me something, I'm not going to controvert them. I'm going to ask 10 questions. Three of them I will direct to the writings. And seven of them I will direct to the flesh and blood founders. And, I, and for every question I ask, I will go to the writings or some writing that is friendly to the religion and pick out the response from my question of each of these five and see what happens. I'm not going to dispute what they're going to say. I'm just going to lay it on the table. Are you with me? That's all I'm going. I'm not fighting with anyone. I'm just looking for the champion of champions, if there is such a thing. If there is none, then when I did my search and I came up with nothing. But that is what I did. I said, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to show you four of those questions, for lack of time. The first question was, those are the five religions, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Christianity, and Judaism. Classification of the literature. Ancient literature is classified into folk tales, legend, myth, or historical. Folk tale, there's no attempt to state a real true story. The main intent to be, is to be interesting and bring out a lesson or a moral. They know that the story is not true. The trees will talk and the sun will smile and the birds and the, and the animals will have a big committee meeting. They know it's not true, but they want to bring out a moral. Legend, it's probably based on a true story, but changes creep in over time exaggerations to superhuman proportions and these changes begin here's a key point generations after the actual story when there are no longer any witnesses to dispute the change that is a legend it takes a long time to make a real legend centuries myth is so far back in history that generally accepted as somebody's imagination and how many how what the period of time centuries and even thousands of years. Historical, 
the attempt is to state a story as it really was. There are no significant changes, no core additions, no core changes. Uh, every ancient piece of literature has changes. None has escaped. The question is, are those changes core changes, that, that it changed the story, or minor changes? And the closer to the event, the greater the credibility. In other words, the event happened here. This is the story that happened. The people made up the story. The time gap between the actual story and the formation of the story in the minds is one period. Then from that time when they started talking, it's called the oral tradition, up to the first manuscript that was written regarding the story is another period. And then from that first initial manuscript to the earliest manuscript we possess is another period. Okay, so these periods give us an idea of credibility. If the periods are very close, then the credibility of the historicity of that piece of, uh, uh, of literature is much better than one in which there are huge gaps. Does that sound okay? Because, well, I'll come to that. What I did was, I went through them and found that the New Testament appeared pretty historical. Maybe we should just go ahead and do that. What's the time? I don't have a watch with me. How much more time do we have? Okay, let this, let's go on to this then. That's fine. We'll, 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 that's, that's okay. Uh, fine, because the other parts are also pretty strong. So let's go with this. Go ahead. Caesar's Gaelic Wars and Herodotus' history and Tacitus' annals are accepted as historical pieces of literature in any university in the world. You can go to the history department and get your MAs and PhDs quoting them. So it is accepted. But look at the gaps. Caesar's Gaelic War was written in 100 BC, and the earliest manuscript we have is 900 AD, a gap of 1,000 years. In other words, we do not know what happened to the actual material for 1,000 years. Herodotus' history is 900 400 BC to 980, 1300 years. Tacitus Annals is 1000 years. One millennium in which we do not know what happened to the actual text. And still we accept it as historical. Look at the difference. The New Testament, the earliest manuscript is here. And it was written around here, so the gap is just about here. And this is the Gospels, okay? Do you know which is the earliest writings of the New Testament? They're the writings of Paul. They're not the Gospels. And Paul came later into the movement. So the story had already been formed by the time Paul came around. And in his writings, which are dated to within 15 years of the life of Jesus, they have found some tombs which they have dated to AD 41, 10 years. And on those tombs it says, Jesus the Ascended One. 
AD 41. In other words, taking the time gap that you require for forming a legend or a myth, a mythological story, this book, the New Testament, has no gap at all. The other thing that gives us a credibility is the number of manuscripts. You see, if there are only three manuscripts, one in this room and one in the other room, and downstairs, I can go one night and change all of them. And nobody will know that I've changed them. And the text has become corrupted. But I've slipped in all the change. But if there are 500 of them, one here and one in Canada and one in India, then you can't go to change all of them. If you change, they'll figure out that you've changed it and they'll recorrect it. So you cannot corrupt easily a text that has many, many manuscripts spread out geographically. Caesar's Gaelic Wars is based on 10 manuscripts worldwide. Herodotus history on 8, Tacitus annals 20. The champion of Greek literature is Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad is based on 643 manuscripts. Are you impressed? Yes, compared to this, New Testament, suppose I say the New Testament is based on 664 manuscripts, will you be impressed? Okay, it is based on 5,664. And that is Greek manuscripts. If you add the Latin and the Armenian and the Arabic and the whole host of them, do you know how many manuscripts back this New Testament, 24,900. Where are these numbers? And what is this? Can you see, don't let anybody fool you about the New Testament being a mythological story. It is not. It has the characteristics of a historical piece of document. Listen to this. In real terms, the New Testament is the best attested ancient writing in terms of sheer number of documents the time span between the events in the document and the variety of documents available to sustain or contradict it. There is nothing in ancient manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity. No other ancient book has anything like such early and plentiful testimony to its text and no unbiased scholar would deny that the text that has come down to us is substantially sound. In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely unapproachably alone among ancient prose writing. Ancient prose writings, not ancient religious writings. You put the Babylonians and the Sumerians and the Mayans and the Chinese and the Indians and the Greeks and the legends and put all of them on the table. This New Testament will be the best attested ancient piece of literature in the world, not just religious. And therefore, if you are going to be skeptical of the text of the New Testament, that is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity, for no document of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. If you want to, if you want to now cast aspersions on the New Testament, then you will have to honestly deny anything of ancient history on planet Earth. Because everything else has less credibility than this one piece of literature. Second question. Does that writing allow me to check it out? 
In other words, does it throw out a challenge such that if I test it, I might be able to check it out for reliability and authenticity and credibility? Isn't that a fair question? Mm -hmm. I don't know whether they're going to do it, but just in case they might throw out and say, hey, you want to check me out? Check me out on this point. Hinduism, we have to accept it as it is. <laughs> you can't check it out. Same thing with Buddhism. It's unconditional, undeterminate, and beyond thought and word. So there's no way you, you can check it out. Just swallow it and experience it, and the experience will be your test. But I wanted to check it out first before I experienced it. Amen. So I, I said, okay, okay. Let's find out if there's something else, somebody else that wants to do it. Islam, yes, it does throw out a challenge. Produce one chapter comparable to it. Call upon your idols to assist you if you, what you say is true. But if you fail, as you are sure to fail. In other words, here is a test. Can you produce a book like the Quran? And in another place it says, can you produce a chapter like the Quran? Can you produce ten chapters like the Quran? If you can, good. But I'm, we are sure you can't because this was from Allah, God. I looked at that and said, okay, let me check it out. Let me see if I can find some other text that is equal. And then I ran into four snags. It does not say what aspect to be equaled. Should it be the doctrine? Should it be the prose? Should it be the rhythm? Should it be the poetry? Should it be the, should it be the philosophy? Should it be the truth of the matter? Should it be the description of God? What is it that should be equaled? It doesn't say. It doesn't say how it should be compared. A point system or just looking at it and saying it looks better or what? Number three, who will be the judge to say that this is better than that or worse than that? Will it be some mullah maybe in Saudi Arabia? Or will it be an, a, a committee chosen by the United Nations or something? Or will it be me? It doesn't say who will be judge. The fourth one, to the orthodox Muslim, there's only one language of divine communication, that's Arabic. I have in my library the English translation of the Quran. An orthodox Muslim will never consider that the Quran. The Quran is the Quran only in the Arabic language. So for me to equal the Quran, I would have to write it in Arabic. I know scores of my Muslim friends who with whom, with, who with whom I grew up who don't know even one line of literary Arabic. So I am out of that challenge. The challenge is vague and it has lost its universal characteristic. A vague, nebulous challenge that is applicable to only a narrow segment of Earth's population is not a real challenge. Is that okay? Yeah. If you challenge, then throw it out on the table for everyone to see. When you come to the Judeo-Christian scriptures, and I put them together for the simple reason that that is the challenge there, present your case, and this is from the Old Testament, present your case, says the Lord, let them bring forth and show us what will happen, declare to us things to come, show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. In other words, I am God, I am writing out this literature here, and inside this literature, I'm going to predict things. And when you'll, you will see whether it, the predictions come true because you will be able to check it out. 
it's as clear as anything else. I'm going to make some predictions here. And let's see if you can make those predictions, anybody. The predictions that I will make here, it's called predictive prophecy. Meaning, the prediction is an event. The fulfillment is a separate event connected only by the prophecy. In other words, the same guy who predicted didn't go and do it. They're not connected. They are completely separate. That's called predictive prophecy. Some prediction is made, and it comes to pass without any help from the source that predicted or the person who predicted it, at least the human person. All right. So that is called predictive prophecy. This scripture, Christians consider the old and the new as one, has prophecies. I'm going to show you one. Babylon. Jeremiah lived about 500 to 600 BC. This prophecy was made in about 595 to 596 BC. He said Babylon shall become a heap without an inhabitant and the previous line he said I will make her springs dry. When he wrote these words in 595 BC Babylon was the strongest city in the world. You know, this is about seven, eight feet, nine, max. You know how high the walls of Babylon went up? Many of the places went up to 200 feet. How broad was it? Two chariots could run side by side around the whole perimetry of, perimeter of the city. Broad, high. What do you do to when you want to overcome a city that has huge walls. You get battering rams, but battering rams, these walls are too big, too strong. What do you do? All you can do is lay siege. You get your army and just surround the city and don't let them come out. They can't get to the, the hills and the valleys and place where they get food, so they get starved and then they come out with their hands up saying, we give up. That's a siege. Why would you not be able to lay siege really to Babylon is because inside Babylon, in its storehouses, there was food for every inhabitant of Babylon for a period of 20 years, a whole generation. You could not lay siege to Babylon. You can't hit the walls. You can't climb the walls. You can't lay siege. And yet Jeremiah said, this Babylon will become a heap and become a place where there's no inhabitants. Do you know how Babylon fell? It was watered by the river Euphrates that went under one side and came out the other side of the city. Cyrus the Mede came and he said he was, he was going to win the whole world as his empire. He found Babylon to be the only obstacle. If I can get Babylon, I'll be world emperor. He came with his armies and Tradition has it that his horse died in the river Euphrates while crossing. He got so mad with the river, he said, I want this river dry. I don't want to run anymore with water. So he called his generals and they say his generals and the soldiers, they got together and dug canals on the sides of river Euphrates. They say about 80 to 300 canals they dug and drained out the water of the river Euphrates into those canals. 
And as soon as the riverbed was dry, Cyrus saw his way into the city on the riverbed. That is how Babylon fell. Do you know how long it take, took for it to fall? One night. On the riverbed. He had just drained out the water, saw his way, commanded his armies, they got inside there, smashed the city up in one night. See what was, what was predicted. I will make her springs dry. Today, few words evoke as many images of ancient decadence, glory, and prophetic doom as does Babylon. And yet the actual place 50 miles south of Baghdad is flat, hot, next word? 2,500 years later, you cannot deny today with your own eyes you will see that it is not inhabited. It was predicted at a time of its zenith. And right now you, can, you and I can go there and see that it's not inhabited even today. How many such predictions do you think you would be impressed with? <laughs> To say that this prophet is really huh, somebody great. How many do you think you would be impressed with? Ten. Ten. I was thinking a dozen. Alright, ten, dozen. What do you say? Somebody else? How many do you think predictions would, that would come true would really impress you? Ten, twelve, let's say ten, twelve. Suppose I was a prophet. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. Suppose I was a prophet. Do I look like one? Kind of. Kind of. Suppose I came to your home. Everyone for the last five generations has only blonde, straight hair in your family. And I'm saying that your son is going to be born with black curly hair. And at the age of four, your son is going to be able to read all of Shakespeare's works. And at the age of 12, he's going to graduate from the university with a professional degree. And at the age of 20, he's going to represent the United States in the butterfly stroke and win the gold medal. And at the age of 30, he will go into the field of astrophysics and is going to win the Nobel Prize. What will you think if all of these came true? Just five. Would you be impressed? Yes. Oh boy. <laughs> you would follow me to the ends of the earth to find out what my next prediction would be. Yeah, just five. Another five, do you think you would, you know, you would be impressed, man, tipping the hat every time you see me. <laughs> the Judeo-Christian scriptures has 600 prophecies. 322 of them, 322 of them was about one individual. 24 of them came to pass in one weekend, not your 10, not my 12, 24 in one weekend, 
man, don't you think we should say, what is this? Can you see that these scriptures, when it threw out a challenge, was able to meet its own challenge in such a way that nobody, no thinking, fair, rational person can ever deny. But you can check these things out. You don't have to have all 600. I was happy with 12. Go and find 20. And recognize that there is something about the scripture that is really impressive. It is definitely historical. It also is the only, the only scripture that has ever thrown out a challenge to the public. This is the challenge. You will not find another religious scripture that has thrown out such a challenge anywhere. Let's take a break for a minute. I need to drink a little bit. Oh, yeah, plenty of water here. <laughs> Thank you. Let's. Yes, questions. Excellent question. <clears throat> Excellent question because then you know, then at least there's an e something equal with somebody else or some other, uh, some other writing. <clears throat> very, very few, and none of them really come into the classification of what we described as predictive prophecy, meaning these two events are completely separate, or they can be verified. For instance, the Hindu literature does have a prediction. We are living today in what is known as the Kali Yuga, the age that is the, the predecessor of the Golden Age. The wickedness is so much that the only savior is a Golden Age coming up. That's the next age in the Hindu literature. But that is going to come anywhere from a few hundred to 230,000 years. So who is going to check that prediction? Can you see that? OK, so the, that, ha, that is one prediction, but it can't be checked. The Muslims in, in, their, in the Quran, there's a vague reference to Mecca being, either Mecca or Medina, being destroyed by fire. That was a prediction made. And it was made by then the writer was who? Who was the writer of the, or the one who spoke out the Quran? Muhammad. Okay. Muhammad then actually made the verbal prediction. Although he got it from Angel Gabriel, he made the verbal. And here's why it is not so credible because after he made the prediction that, I think it was Mecca, that Mecca would be destroyed, he took his army and destroyed it. <laughs> so it came true. But you don't attach the credibility of a prophecy when you yourself do what you have predicted. So yes, it is. There's 50% chance that it would not have come. He may have been beaten back too. So there's only 50% chance. But again, it's not called predictive prophecy because they are not separate in, uh, events. So very good question. You do not really find it. Yes? I've got a couple questions. One is, how many manuscripts do we find of the Quran? 
good question again. <clears throat> um, unfortunately, the Quran, which is in one sense historical because it's written very close to the life of Muhammad, in the third caliphate, now after Muhammad died, were the next four rulers who were called caliphs, the golden age of the Muslim faith. It's called the caliphate. The third caliph was Uthman. During Uthman's reign, Ali, who would be the fourth caliph, accused Uthman of corrupting the text of the Quran. So Uthman said, hey, that can't be. I'm, I'm not only the, the, the temporal ruler, I'm also the religious ruler of the Muslims. So I, I can't have this accusation against me. So he instituted a committee go and find out what the correct text should be and bring it here. So these scholars, excellent scholars, they went out into the community, country after country, and picked out all the, what they tested as the authentic stories regarding Muhammad's revelations he got on Mount Hira and other places, and compiled that into the authentic Quran and brought it to Uthman. Unfortunately, what Uthman did was took that and destroyed everything else. So we have no idea. I cannot test today whether what's here was really there. And we don't have a number. But it destroyed everything else. Okay, and then the other question is um, some of their offshoots and some of the like Mormons who have had similar instances of meeting with Yeah, what's the question? Um, when, in, when dealing with those offshoots, the nation of Islam, that now have a new prophet. Yes. How do those relate to, to the manuscripts now? There's the same thing. Sufism is the, is the mystic form of the Islamic faith. Sufism has its own set of writings now. So you can't really put them with Muhammad's now. The Quran stays as the Quran, as a central uh, piece of literature of the Islamic faith. You have lots of other things like we have in Christianity too. Do you know how many uh, denominations they have counted and groups of Christians? 33,000. So we're not dealing with offshoots. You go <laughs> bang your head against the wall <laughs> if you deal with offshoots. Take the main one. Yes, there's a question there. I mean, we're talking about some very detailed stuff here. Uh, I'm, I'm making a case for a very broad uh, foundational issue. The, so I'll just respond by saying that, yes, the, the Quran does talk about the Sabbath, and it does talk about the persons who don't keep the Sabbath as being cursed. 
Yeah, li like I said, that's a very <laughs> detailed yes. question. I don't know how she was convinced by that because the Quran is very clear on which day they should go. That's Friday. The day of the Muslims is Friday, not this. So there are three holidays, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And actually it's not Saturday, but we won't discuss that. It's called the seventh day, never Saturday. Uh, now I turn. We, we did the two things. Shall we take a break? Half a minute? Okay. Eighteen minutes. Let's quickly finish this. These two. We'll, we'll see if we can go through two. One of the questions I asked now for the founder. What we asked were for the literature. Can I check you out? Founder, here's the first question I asked. What's the highest claim you make for yourself, Mr. Founder? When it came to the Hindus, Vishwamitra is not a founder, he's one of the authors, and that's all they have, authors of those who wrote out their literature. And the highest claim they made for themselves was a sage. A sage is a very revered individual in society who is known for his wisdom and knowledge, counsel, poise, and piety. Buddhism, Gautama Buddha said he was the enlightened one. Islam, Muhammad said he was the seal of the prophets. Judaism, Moses said he was a prophet and a lawgiver, friend of God. And Jesus, he said he was a son of God. Now, if you have become an inquirer, the line is drawn here. All these are human. In the claim itself, he bangs you hard if you're an inquirer. Everyone claimed to be something that we all can relate to. This no human can relate to because this belongs to another realm. So who gave him the right? That, would, that was my first question. You dress like me. You eat like me. You run to that carpenter shop and struggle from morning to evening and I don't know how much of the ends you make meet over there. And then you call yourself God. Give me a break. My income is more than yours. But, you know my first question, what kind of literature is this? It's not written in a mythological literature. It is not written in a legendary literature. It's written in the most authentic historical piece of literature. Here I am, unable to accept this guy's claim as God, unable to toss him out because it's written in the best attested ancient piece of literature, which is historical. Now what do I do? I've got to be fair. I can't throw it out. And I've got to be honest. I can't believe. <laughs> he looks just like anybody else. The only way I at, uh, kind of addressed it was to find out what kind of people who are humans call themselves God. Mad? Or liar? I mean, if he's a liar, he'll have to be a pathological, incorrigible liar. Megalomaniac? Oh, truly God. Was he mad or deluded? What did some great thinker say? I'm going to hear a uh, quote, somebody we don't usually quote in, in religious matters. He was one of the world's emperors, Napoleon Bonaparte. 
when he was exiled, they told him, can you consider somebody who lived 1800 years ago? Who is he? Jesus. Hey, come on. I'm world emperor. <laughs> Bitty little peasant fellow. What do you want me to deal with him and what he spoke about in those days? No, just consider him. Okay, lots of time exiled. So let me read about him. When he finished reading and listening to those who said there was such a person, this is what he said. Everything in Christ astonishes me. The nearer I approach, the more carefully I examine. Everything is above me. Everything remains grand of a grandeur which overpowers. And neither history, nor humanity, nor ages, nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. Bernard Ram, he talked about Jesus' words. They read more, quoted more, believed more, loved more, translated more because of the greatest words ever spoken. So you can't call him mad. Because people have been astounded with the clarity and the high level of thinking of his mind. Was he a liar? Not likely because of the Sanhedrin tile. They asked him the same question I was asking. Hey, are you really son of God? Jesus knew he was a Jew. He knew the Torah. He knew that anybody who was a human being who claimed to be God was guilty then of blasphemy and would be stoned to death. Now if you are in a, in a, in a, in a, in a trial, wouldn't you like to bring some solid, good, truthful evidence to escape the death sentence? Yeah. Now suppose you knew you were guilty, but if your attorney said, look, I can save you from the gallows, just tell these two lies, wouldn't you be tempted? Yeah. If you're in a right mind, you will bring truth to escape the death sentence. You may even resort to falsehood to escape the death sentence. But nobody in his right mind will tell a lie to bring on the death sentence. It's like me going home and saying, no, I, I didn't kill, but the, but the judge wants me to say that. So if you don't mind, my dear wife and my children, I'm going to say, I, I, did, I did commit the murder and then go and hang. How much sense does that make? It's a psychological hurdle you cannot cross. This man truly believed he was the son of God and he died for it. I don't know whether he really was, but I know he thoroughly believed it from the depths of his heart. And a person who believes and says what he believes, not called a liar, he may be mistaken, but not a liar. A liar is somebody who knows there is the truth and does not say it, or does knows it is not the truth and says. Megalomaniac, very unlikely, here again. Who are the megalomaniacs who call themselves God? The pharaohs of Egypt and the Caesars of Rome, they said they were gods, but they were humans. And they sat on the throne. You had to polish their shoes. They wouldn't do it the other way around. But this man one day, he washed the feet of his disciples like a common servant. That is not the picture of a person drunk with power. No, you sit on the throne if you are a megalomaniac. You don't wash feet. And so I couldn't call him any of these three. He was not mad. Not, he was not a liar. He was not a megalomaniac. So could he be truly God? I don't know. But this is what C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Can you see the force of the reasoning? You cannot call him a moral, good moral teacher because he called himself God. Because he was not God, he's a liar then. That's a trilemma. Dilemma, trilemma. Liar, lunatic or Lord. So, can you see, uh, I'm not going to read that. You can read if you want. So here we are faced with this person and like I said I'm not going to dispute what the others are saying. Each of them said what they wanted to nobody stopped them from saying that they were God. I didn't stop Gautama Buddha from saying he is God then why didn't he say he was God? I didn't stop Muhammad from saying he is close to Allah. No, but this man said he was God. So in his claim sets him apart completely from everyone else in the very claim and I can't dispute his claim, I can't dispute any of the other claims I, uh, of, of the, any of the others. And therefore, I just lay them side by side and recognize that this claim is different. Vastly different. And also, I can't dismiss it. Second question, that's the last thing for this evening. What is the message? Give me in two lines your message and ambition. When it comes to Hinduism, it was to show the way to ultimate truth that the merging of the human Atma or spirit or soul into the super soul of Brahman. Buddhism for enlightenment I was born for the good of all that live. In other words, I was enlightened, I'll show you how to, how to get light. For Muslims, the Quran is the infallible word of God revealed to the Prophet Muhammad by the angel Gabriel. So Muhammad's message and mission was to bring the word of God to the human family. Judaism, you shall therefore keep my statutes and judgments which a man does, he shall live. So Moses' idea was to bring the statutes, rules, commandments of God, which if you do, you live. When it comes to Jesus, he uses words that no other founder ever used. He said, I am. Just think for just a little while. He's the only founder who claimed then to be identical with his message. Every other founder said, I will show you the truth. He said, I am the truth. Every other founder said, I will show you the way. He said, I am the way. Every other founder said, I will show you the light and I'll show you how to get enlightened. He said, that which you are enlightened, I am. The words I am are absolutely unique. There is no other founder who ever dared to say, I am the message. Every other founder says, look, I'm bringing you a message. This is the only founder who said, I have come as the message. In every religion, you are introduced to rules and doctrines and philosophies. This is the only religion where you are introduced to a person. Not, uh, there are rules and doctrines. 
There are philosophies and, and tenets of belief, but this is the one place where you will find that everything else is secondary to a person. Does that not kind of hold your attention? How come he said, I am? Because probably, now here I'm thinking out logically, if he was of this realm, then he would bring something that I also could bring, if I had the opportunity. But if he came from another realm, and if he came as a babe, then he would have to bring whatever he is bringing in himself. He can't ask for anybody else, he can't go anywhere else. He had to bring it in himself. It is in line with his previous statement that I have come from another realm. I am from the realm of God. And so when I came from the realm of God, I brought the message in myself. And therefore I am the message. Two comparisons with Gautama Buddha. Gautama Buddha at the age of 29 went on a search for truth. For six years, he looked for truth. Beat himself up, lay on a couch of thorns, fasted. Sometimes he would fast for a week, sometimes for a whole week with only one grain of rice. That's okay, go ahead. Uh huh. I know. I can see that. <laughs> okay. Don't worry. Um, yes, he would. He would tell how he would pull out the hair of his beard and the hair of his head, searching, desperately searching for light. Finally, after six years, one night, in a town called Bodh Gaya, under a ficus tree. He claimed to be enlightened in four successive steps. Desperate search and got the light. Compare that with the claim of this man. There was never any desperate search for light. He never beat himself up. He never smacked himself, never went on you know, a horrible search so that his, you know, that's all he was looking for was light. He simply stood up to the people and said, I am the light. Whoever was looking for whatever they called light, I am that light. The second, I'll get to your question. The second comparison is, is with Muhammad. At about the year 620 AD, Muhammad was on one night, it's, it's called the Isra, night journey. It's supposed to establish himself as one of the key prophets of Allah because he was taken up there. One night from Mecca where he was sleeping, he was woken up by angel Gabriel and put on to the heavenly horse Baruch and was taken from Mecca to the temple mount in Jerusalem. When he landed at the temple mount, there was a ladder. It had seven parts because each part would take him to the heavens. There are seven heavens and Allah resides in the seventh heaven. Each heaven is presided over by a prophet. 
there was John, there was Jacob, there was Jesus, there was Abraham, all, you know. He went up to the seventh heaven, to the level at which Allah dwells, and then came back. And then when he recited his experience the next day to the people, they said, surely you are the, the seal of the prophets. You went up to Allah's level and came back. Yes, let's take that. Like I said, I'm not going to controvert them. Very well. Probably you went up to the seventh heaven where Allah, God, dwells. Compare that with then this man's. The place, the story of Muhammad is a confession. Simple confession, like you and mine. Because if we live here, and if we went there, then we would have to go there for a visit. So that is Muhammad's confession. He, was, he lives here. This is his home. And he went to heaven for a visit. The claims of Jesus are exactly the opposite. He lives there, came here for a visit. So the origins and the direction of travel is exactly the opposite. Now who will know more about the truth of Kahuta Springs? Somebody who lives here? Or I who came for just a few hours here? Who will describe to you the lake in the greatest detail? What fish live in that lake? The one who lives here. Who has the right to really tell you the truth from its ultimate source, the one who lives where the ultimate source resides. Are you with me? Amen. So if that is his home, that's where he lives, then he knows most about that place than anyone else. You can go there for a visit, but what you will know is what you get in two hours. And that's it. You will not know any details. You will not be able to establish the real foundational truths of that place. Nah, that belongs to the person who has lived there, who was born there, as it were, although he was not born. So with these words, we describe a claim that is very clearly setting himself apart from any other claim on earth. We have not looked at some of the others. That's for lack of time, but we'll close here. And I hope I've given you some idea that if you want to search in an, in, with an inquiring mind and really ask the questions and don't take sides, let all of them give you the answers just as they want to, put it side by side, you have no option but to follow the man that is described in this book. Amen. 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 We are out of time because the next program is supposed to start in just about okay. three, four, three or four minutes. But I wonder, the information you've been giving us yesterday and today, Yes. do you include that it's and more in this book that you're yes. selling? Yes, that's the book. There are some over there. They cost, now I'm a one-man ministry, so when I print those, I have to pay. So I'm just asking for a donation of $15 for each of those books. They are there. You can just toss the $15 into that box there, the, the cardboard box there, and pick up your copy if you want one. All that I have said, 
right on the book. And the whole thing. Thank you. Yeah, you want to go ahead? Okay. But Let's, I just have one quick question. Yes. How come the other uh, world, uh, the leaders of these other world religions never made these claims? Do you have any idea? I know it's just speculation, but... Oh, you know, no, they were, they were honestly making their claims for, their, for themselves. Okay. They were making their honest claims. Okay. So I'm taking them as if they made an honest claim. That's how I look at it. Every one of them made an honest claim as to what they really thought they were. And so I cannot dismiss his claim as a dishonest claim now, because I claimed ev I took everyone as honest. So if I believe them, I should believe him too. And if you believe all of them, then one stands out like a, like a rock of ages. <laughs> you, you can't help it. Let's pray before we, while we close. Thank you, Heavenly Father. In your wisdom, you understood how we would ask, how we would search, how we would be troubled because we didn't have enough evidence. And so you have placed this evidence within our reach. And I thank you so much that we can look at them with a fair, inquiring mind. And we can be drawn, drawn beautifully to your feet and understand that this book, the Bible you have given, is, is a unique book that can be, cannot be equaled by any other book on earth. And it talks about Jesus, who is totally unequaled, a prince of princes. This is our prayer in his name. Amen.